VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm your social worker with the microphone. How are you doing this morning? You're listening to World Talk Radio and VoiceAmericaVariety.com. As you know, listen to us every Wednesday, Eastern Time, 10 to 11. At the end of the day, we archive the show so you can listen to us anytime. Um, it's the Catherine Zock Show, your social worker with the microphone, and I have three guests this morning. Two of the guests are going to, we're going to talk to in the first half hour, uh, Susan Cantrell, who's the first regional director for North America DIA, and Alyssa Levins, president and founder of the Center for Communication Compliance. We're going to find out what these ladies are doing, uh, launching the Women's Leadership Project. So we'll find out what that is. Uh, uh, my last guest in the second half hour of the show is uh, Carla Malden. Maybe you know her father, Carl Malden, the actor. Well, this is his daughter. And she's just written, written a memoir, um, After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. It's uh, rather a bleak memoir, but an inspiring one, inspiring one. So we'll find out about that in the second half of the show. But first we have Lisa Levins and Susan Cantrell. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning. Nice Are to be here. Yes, it's nice to have you. We finally connected. Uh, yes. This was the, the launch of the Women's Leadership Project. These two organizations uh, came together to launch the Women's Leadership Project. First of all, what are the two organizations? How are you connected, and what is the Women's Leadership pro- uh, Project? Well, uh, Catherine, the two organizations are DIA, um, which um, uh, traditionally is known as the Drug Information Association, and HBA, or the Healthcare Businesswomen's Association. So just by way of background, DIA is a global, multidisciplinary community that brings together professionals to advance discovery, development, and life cycle management of uh, pharmaceuticals and other medical products. And we do that through convening forums and providing educational programs and knowledge resources that offer solutions to the challenges that the individuals face in these positions. Um, HBA is the premier catalyst for leadership development of women in healthcare worldwide. So the organization focuses on leadership development for women who work in uh, areas in healthcare, including in the pharmaceutical industry. So the initiative is a collaboration between the two organizations, as you mentioned, and it's focused on advancing the careers of women who work in regulatory, medical, legal, and compliance areas by accelerating their leadership talent and also their leadership impact. So we're very excited about it. You know, it's really interesting, Catherine, if I could just say, is that the pressures of the regulatory environment in healthcare are just intense. There's intense scrutiny of the drug and device industry from the Food and Drug Administration, who approves the marketing of pharmaceutical drugs, and uh, at the state level, along with private and class al- uh, action allegations. And these women in these four functions every day, in every way, are supporting their company and meeting the requirements of these, organ- of these government uh, organizations. 
And what we found, given those pressures, is that it was even more important for these four functions to have the leadership skills so they could fulfill their corporate responsibilities and support the patients they serve. And in our research, we actually uncovered some challenges. In these industries, there are few mentors or sponsors for women, and you can imagine how important in any job it is to have a mentor to support you. And there were few of them who were women to give these women and these four functions help. Um, women also aren't skilled at networking. You know, networking, I have to say, the good old boys network, you know, obviously there's a traditional camaraderie that goes on, and women aren't good at that, and they need to learn that as a skill. Um, plus, there's some unconscious bias against women, um, unconscious because no one really still feels like a woman can't do her job or excel at it or be a CEO because there's a lot of role models now, but there still remains some un- some unbias. And also, women still hold a traditional role. I mean, they still take care of the kids. They have to make the doctor's appointments. So that also is a challenge in leadership. So we asked ourselves four questions in developing this initiative, and then we'll go into what the goals are. Yeah, okay. First is, how can we as women prepare ourselves for leadership? Okay, what are the skills that we need that we don't have? How can we be, this is a key question, how can we be more assertive with what we need for work-life balance, right? Everybody needs work-life balance. We're working hard at the job, and then we have our family. So how do you balance those two? You know what? You know what else we uncovered? That women are potentially holding themselves back, which was really interesting. Um, And maybe they're holding other women back. And then finally, anyway, in this industry, these four functions are considered more supportive and not on the track for the C-suite, for the CEO position. So how do we change that? And, And Susan can speak to the goals. Okay, let's take each one of those. In, let's take, let's really break each one of these down. What are the skills that women need? What do we need for our leadership? Okay, Susan, do you want to answer that one, or how are we tackling that? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, Alyssa mentioned a couple of those. Uh, one um, that's very important is networking. Um, and women need the skills to in order to network so that they can position themselves to move into leadership positions. You know, I think it's uh, uh, you know, not Susan, unique. Can I interrupt you just for a second? Because here it is, what is it, August uh, 2012, 2012, and we still don't know how to network. What, what is that? And I think that uh, Alyssa mentioned one thing. Uh, are we holding ourselves back in terms of networking, or is someone holding us back, or is it a collaboration between the two? We're not networking. I think you're absolutely right, Catherine. You've hit upon something very important and something that our interviews with members of our steering committee for the initiative um, were uh, pointing to, and that is, um, yes, women aren't the best self-promoters, quite frankly. Uh, we need uh, often to raise our hands, to step up to the plate, uh, to take on challenging assignments, and to be our own advocates. So there is an element of that that we've determined, and we're trying to, through this initiative, educate women on how to better network and build their networks and communities, which is a big part of the initiative is to build a community of women who can help uh, build these skills, work with one another, serve as mentors for for one another, and and just provide the critical connections that are needed. Let me give you one quick example. Uh, If there is a job opening, and let's say it has five key 
skill sets that the individual candidate needs to fulfill. The guy will say, oh, I have one of them. Let me throw my hat in the ring and go for the job. The woman will say, oh, I only have four of them. I don't have that fifth one. Let me develop myself over the next year, and then maybe I'll apply for the job. So there's just this bravado that women are missing and the self-confidence um, and the ability to also understand how to balance the work-life integration. So there's some choices they need to make that may be holding them back from actually going for it. Yeah, I think um, another piece of that, Alyssa, is also women have this kind of, and maybe it's the way we're raised, This everything has to be just right. It has to be in place before we can ask for a raise or ask for a new position or, or whatever it is. So we, as you said, you know, we have all the three of the skills, but we don't have the fourth, so we're not going to ask. That kind of perfectionism, I don't know if you would call it perfectionism, but that gets in our way. All We have to do the right thing, or we think we do, or whatever the right thing is. Yeah, all right. There's certainly an element of that, and um, uh, we want to. We, we don't often uh, focus on building these uh, soft skills, if you will, uh, the skills on uh, putting your priorities in order, determining what uh, your career path should be, and going after that um, uh, to the extent that um, uh, there are opportunities available. And uh, we focus more, especially in these four areas within the industry um, and within healthcare on more of the technical skills. So we think it's important to do both, and uh, that's what we're aiming to do here with this initiative. Okay, you know, let's talk about, and I'm just going to, uh, and I, I'm not even sure that I said this in the beginning of the show, but your titles. I mean, Alyssa is the president and founder of the Center for Communication Compliance. Susan, you're the first regional director for North America, DIA. You obviously have these skills. Let's, you know, can we get a little bit personal about this? You apparently do have network, both of you, networking skills, uh, work-life balance, um, don't hold yourself back. How did you two do it? Let me just want say, if I could, for one minute, that it's so interesting. Uh, you know, the catalyst for this collaboration was a personal uh, experience that I had because I have been on the board for the uh, Healthcare Businesswomen's Association uh, on and off for about 10 years. And from this association, and I would recommend that any woman in any function, in any industry, join the associations that can support them from a leadership perspective, and that's what HBA does. I grew so much over my association in the decade with this organization that I was able to achieve these networking skills, the self-confidence, the self-esteem, understanding how to have executive presence to go out there, you know, and really tackle, feel the fear, but do it anyway, which is a book. Uh, and so what I realized is, because I was part of this HBA, but also I'm in regulatory compliance, which is the area that DIA covers, and I saw that there were so many women that were members of the DIA that were in need of these leadership skills. So we put the two organizations to support them. So, you know, in terms of personally, um, it's been a long road of uh, working on myself to ensure that I could go out there and actually Prove to myself that I had what it took, and yes, I um, founded my own company. I have uh, founded a couple of companies and was in a big corporation for 25 years, moved up to the chairman position, but there was a lot of self-analysis going on throughout that period. Susan? Yes, and uh, Catherine, you bring up a really good point. Rather than uh, use me, though, as an example, I'd like to focus on um, another person within DIA who was really, along with Alyssa, 
the, the brainchild behind this initiative and uh, is the co-chair of the initiative, and that is uh, Minnie Baylor Henry. Minnie is vice president, worldwide vice president of regulatory affairs for Johnson and Johnson, and she and Alyssa really founded the uh, entire concept behind this initiative that we're bringing to bear. Uh, Minnie has been involved in DIA for a number of years. She's certainly done well in her profession. Um, she's well thought of. She's a leader and a role model for so many uh, women and men in the industry. Uh, within DIA, she's been on our board of directors and uh, now is president-elect, so next year she'll ascend to the highest elected leadership position within the organization. So clearly, she's a role model and having, um, having her, having Alyssa, and a number of women who have uh, positioned themselves well, who have done a really good job in developing these skills and promoting themselves, um, I think they'll serve as a real inspiration to others who are getting involved in the initiative and learning about what we're doing. Do you find that women, when you do have the mentors, and, and as you say, and I think you said earlier, sometimes there is a lack of mentoring among women, but when even when mentors are available, do you find that women seek out mentors like men do, or are they reluctant to do that? I, I don't know that we have any specific uh, data that shows one way or the other. Um, it, uh, one thing that we do know is that women often have, because of their many competing obligations, uh, which is not unique to women. It's, uh, we all face the same thing if we're trying to strike that right balance. But um, they have so many competing obligations that they don't often carve out time to do these necessary um, activities to connect with the right mentors, uh, to really work on developing themselves and their own skills. Um, so I, I don't know um, that we've uncovered that specifically, but it could be in some cases a matter of time. And uh, so what we can do through this initiative is hopefully develop those skills, help them hone those skills so that they're able to do that, they're able to seek those mentors, look for those role models that can help them move along that career path and ascend to these leadership positions. Well, uh, Susan, I think you said something really important because it's not just honing those skills. I mean, that's part of it, but the other part is helping women to realize that networking and mentoring are important. They're just as important as the as skill building, and so they need to. And I think isn't that something? I'm sure that's part of this of the Women's Leadership Project initiative. But they have to feel that it's important, and they can't feel that well. I only have a certain amount of time, so I'm sort of not going to get into the networking or the mentoring. I'm just going to do my job, you know, and 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 learn those skills, and that's enough. And it's not. You know, I have a quote here from the research that we did do about honing the skills to prepare ourselves for leadership, and one quote really rang out, which is, I can't just be competent. I need to understand what drives success. So, again, we're, you know, we've always been the good little girls doing our job, motoring along, checking off the box, not realizing that there was more than just doing our job functionally in order to become a leader. And I think that this initiative, we have three strategies, one of which is changing the mindset by building a community. So one of the things that we are doing is actually bringing all these women together um, with, within a community so they can share um, the secret sauce, if you will, the experiences that they're having and change the mindset because 
that is something that, to your point, needs to be understood, that there needs to be, you know, new change in the way that we're perceiving how to get ahead. I just, if I could just tell one quick story about networking, too, um, how important it is. It's just, just so funny because I was at an event where I uh, mentioned to Minnie Baylor, Henry, who Susan said uh, is my co-chair, that this initiative would be uh, something that we should pursue. And I knew her through networking because of an association I had with the DIA. Minnie said, sounds like a great idea. Why don't I speak to Susan Cantrell, the new director of um, North America? So through the networking, I got to meet Susan. From there, we got introduced to another woman, Sandra Queter, who is a rear admiral involved with the DIA, and she said, this is a great idea. Anyway, it goes on and on until through networking and through word of mouth, we've now built a steering committee of about 30 women from all the major drug and device companies. So how is this, let's, we don't have that much time left, so let's talk about how do you see this as playing out and how is this, you know, in terms of time, in terms of the mission of this whole project, um, and how is it going to affect uh, my audience? How is it going to affect me? Well, I can just say that one of the things that we need to teach this group, and we're going to be moving into a series of workshops and summits, is how to actually quantify and describe your value. So if you you look at a value continuum as a, as a woman, let's say, sometimes we talk in what we do. This is what I do, right, which is more functional. And we have to teach people to move along the value continuum to say, these are the problems I solve. This is how I'm helping my organization. And then continue to move along that value continuum to actually, in the highest possible um, examples, for example, in a company, every company wants to have a good reputation. Every company wants to um, increase the value of their of their corporation. Uh, every other company wants to be sure that there is innovation. So then we have to start talking about those qualities we bring in our job. And then in some cases, there's examples where a certain person's job actually delivers uh, return on investment. So in certain cases, that can be described. So what we're trying to do is change and characterize the, um, the benefits of what we do as women in terms that really describe value. And Catherine, you asked about how it will affect your audience as well. And I guess one thing that we've found through this um, work on this initiative is that um, this is not a unique um, situation in healthcare. HBA and DIA are very focused on uh, healthcare and development of medical products, women who work in healthcare. Um, but what we know is that uh, of all the Fortune 500 companies, currently only 20 are led by women, uh, which is 4%. Um, that's a really small number. And of those, uh, only one uh, top 10 company is led by a woman. Um, so there is um, a room for an opportunity uh, across all industries. And um, I think our hope is while we're focused on healthcare because that's what we do, there might be others in your audience who would take this and move it forward in other industries. Yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like it does, as you say, translate to to most other industries, actually. I mean. Um, as you're describing it. Uh, what about this? You know, we always get back to this uh, balance, work balance. And, uh, you know, I've interviewed a lot of women, executives, employees, women from all walks of life, talking about the whole work balance situation. And some of them come to the conclusion there really isn't a balance. It's really, you know, balance is the wrong word to use. What do you have to say, Susan? 
Actually, um, we've been thinking that as well. We're really referring to it more as uh, work-life integration, and uh, we we think that is a very valid point, um, and it's a very personal decision among women. Um, the Wall Street Journal earlier this year convened a group um, looking specifically at women in the economy. I think it was in May of this year, and uh, there was a survey presented by McKinsey um, as part of this, and about half of the women surveyed um, indicated that they were both the primary breadwinner in their home as well as the primary caregiver. Um, so there's there's uh, no surprise at all that women might be reluctant. They already have two full-time jobs. They might be somewhat reluctant to um, step up to seek jobs that bring even more pressure to them. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. You know, there was uh, uh, one of the uh, women of the year for the Healthcare Business Women's Association. So every year we honor a woman who has actually exemplified many of these characteristics of work balance and achieving and supporting patient care. And uh, one of them said, um, Carolyn Buckloose actually, of Ernst & Young said, uh, you can have it all, you just can't do it all. And so the question really is, what do you want to have, and then what do you need to cho choose in order to do what you want to do to have what you want? But you just can't do it all. So there's always going to be choices that need to be made. Yeah, I think that's an important point, uh, and I agree with her. Uh, it's all about choices, what choices, and, and that we have to make choices. And I think that's, as you say, it's difficult for some women, for many of us, because we feel like we want to do, just do everything. And we can't. So we you know, there was another quote I'll just say. Um, I yeah. see men making choices, and there are many times they put family first. Women need to be thinking more like men on how they approach this and not be passive. They need to do something different, expect something different, be something different. So it's a new mindset that we need to achieve. I think um, in terms of the DIA and the Healthcare Businesswomen's Association, our members are all about enhancing patient care. So we have a particularly important role, not that any other industry doesn't, but that our focus is ensuring that patients get well, that their public health is protected. So we think that this initiative is extremely important to get the women who have a different way of thinking than men, who can bring important ideas to the table, the more they are at the senior leadership level, so that we can do our job of helping patients be healthier. Now, have you gotten a lot of, Alyssa, have you gotten a lot of support for the Women's Leadership Project? Well, our launch event had nearly 200 women attend. Our uh, LinkedIn community is growing every day, and uh, we have an upcoming webinar with the steering committee members, as I say, and you can imagine 30 women who are busier than ever are all going to be attending this webinar to help make a difference. So I think that the support is clearly there and growing. We had our launch event, Catherine, at the DIA annual meeting in June in Philadelphia, and it was just remarkable to sit back and see all the excitement among the women who participated. Um, we had a panel of experts who talked about some of their own personal experiences that was led by Minnie Baylor Henry. We talked about the initiative, and we've had a number of women reach out to us who um, even weren't at the launch event, but they're anxious to get involved in the initiative. So, so far, the response has been overwhelming. People are very excited about it. I'm interested in the demographics of these women in, in, in lots of ways. I guess the age, um, you know, women say in their 20s or 30s, the women in their 40s and 50s and 60s, different responses. Um, you know, how does that work? Because I think it works differently for each one of them when they, you know, different stages of the life cycle when they're in business. Well, there's a critical point uh, when you're in business 10 years 
where if you haven't been given the opportunity to excel or you haven't been able to get yourself to excel, you start asking yourself the question, what am I doing? Maybe I could be spending time with my family instead of working, you know, on this treadmill that's not getting me the fulfillment that I'm looking for from a career level. So, I mean, in terms of the age, the particular sensitive I wouldn't say age, I'm sorry, in terms of the career level. It's really at that 10-year mark. Um, but we do have participants. I mean, the goals of our initiative are to help future leaders, which, as you just said, are in the earlier years, um, to help the 10-year um, mature leaders make the decision to either go ahead or take a different track. And then, of course, the executive leaders, and the goal for those women are to, most importantly, help their organizations lead change by being at the executive table. Well, I think we've covered as much as we can today. I think it's really an exciting project. Um, We've been talking to Alyssa Levin. She's president and founder of the Center for Communication Compliance, HBA, and Susan Cantrell, first regional director for North America DIA. Both ladies we need to look up to. You guys are really wonderful mentors, and we've been talking about the DIA and HBA as they celebrate the new collaboration with the launch of the Women's Leadership Project. Career Building Initiative focuses on regulatory, medical, legal, and compliance functions. Uh, well, I certainly learned a lot today, and I know my audience has. And uh, well, I'll keep in touch with the project. The webinar there's just lots, I guess, as you continue out through through, through the year. But thank you so much. Thank you thank so you. much. Great having you. Coming up next uh, is my last guest is uh, Carl Malden's daughter, Carla Malden, and uh, her new memoir is After Image: A Broken-Hearted Memoir of a Charmed Life. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm your social worker with a microphone. I'm Catherine Zobst, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, the Catherine Zox Show, and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday, 10 to 11 Eastern Time on the net, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my next ex- uh, guest is Carla Malden. She's uh, a mother, and she's the daughter of Carl Malden, and she's also an author. Her new book is After Image, A Broken-Hearted Memoir of a Charmed Life. Uh, and uh, she herself describes this memoir as, re- it could be bleak, but many people have found it inspiring. Welcome to the show, Carla. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is quite a story, and I guess it's also a story, uh, and I think you mentioned this, it's something that is uh, uh, quite prevalent today. Uh, I mean, your 54-year-old husband diagnosed with cancer, and then he dies 11 months later. Uh, baby boomers for whatever reason, are finding themselves in this position um, of being widow or widowers at a young age. You say uh, this book is not about your mother's widowhood. It's very different. Um, So, you know, to ask you what inspired you to write the book, I think we know that, but uh, um, what made it special? What made it different for you? I mean, you and your husband were, it sounds like, had a, a wonderful marriage, as you say in the Title, Charmed Life. Um, now I'm going to stop talking. You can. <laughs> no, me. that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say what inspired me to write the book really was a very gradual process. There wasn't sort of a moment of inspiration. I, I started keeping notes when he was first diagnosed, obviously to kind of keep track of all the medical minutiae, but also to record my feelings. I mean, I'm a writer. That's what I do. I think I was in a state of disbelief, and for me, putting something into words is what makes it real. And then after he died, uh, I wasn't sure that these notes would grow up to be a book, as it were, but it's, it, I just kept writing, and then I realized there really was a book there. And uh, I've been really heartwarmed to find that there are these points of emotional intersection with other people's story, even though the book tells my very personal story of the last year of his life and my transition to widowhood and my first year of basically the rest of my life, I find that there are really these points of intersection that are quite universal. Did you think, I, I, I agree with you, but I, I also, I have a question. Do you think, Carla, that, I mean, and that's in the title, A Charmed Life. You know, here you are, you were, I mean, because you two were high school sweethearts, you had this great marriage, not everybody has that, you're both talented, screenwriting partners, lucky parents, you say all that kind of stuff. So suddenly, your husband is diagnosed with cancer. Do you think that came as a greater shock to you because of all of these other I've often wondered if that is the case. Uh, I really had no frame of reference for something going that wrong, as it were. What uh, happened? How did you? Both my parents, you know, out, my mother is still alive. My father lived three years after him. Uh, I had, I had really never had this. As I said, this, what, I was plunged into the deep end of loss without ever even having dipped a little toe in. I I had no frame of reference for this whatsoever. So I'm not saying that makes it more devastating. It just made my experience what it was, and it made me sort of hyper-attuned to it. So take us through the story. What happened? I mean, all the, I mean, he wasn't feeling well. I mean, you know, he he really um, just for a few weeks started to look a little unwell. Um, he just started to look a little pale, not great. But it was really nothing. I wouldn't say that he was sick by any means. And uh, 
he um, had some tests, one of which was a colonoscopy, and he had colon cancer and was dead 11 months later. Uh, we went through the first six, I mean, I hate for this to be a scary tale for people with colonoscopies. Clearly, everyone should get a colonoscopy. But um, his was just particularly virulent and powerful. And he went through the first six months of chemotherapy, really like the poster child for chemotherapy. We thought, you know, we tried to convince ourselves anyway that this was just going to be a blip in the road and that life would be better and sweeter afterwards. But uh, then it recurred, and and within three months he was gone. You know, I I just lost a a best friend to cancer, and it was ovarian cancer. Well, that's really vicious, yes. Yeah, and the story, though, it was similar in a way, diagnosed, and then she was dead like eight months later. But I always felt like her last eight months were just kind of riddled with pain and chemotherapy, and is there another way of doing it? And I don't know if that was your story but or your husband's story, and Lawrence Starkman. Well... um, we certainly never considered not doing everything possible. Um, I know some people do. Uh, we thought, as I said, at least for the first six months that this was going to be curable. Uh, then when things got bad, I think we were both in enormous cases of denial. I know I certainly was. Uh, I, just, I never believed that, that as bad as things got that this was what was going to happen. I never believed it, and, and here it is five and a half years later. I'm not sure I still do, you know. <laughs> Um, but you, yes, I, I, I think that for some people, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to consider maybe not doing quite so much, but we never did. We always wanted to do everything possible. Uh, and I only mention that because I was at, uh, and my audience knows this, I've mentioned it several times in the past few weeks, but I was with her in hospice and, and, uh, it was actually the nurse who mentioned that, um, you know, sometimes giving people a sense of false hope. I mean, I'm not saying that was the case with you, but it was just, maybe it's just another topic, but, um, different ages of grief you mentioned rather than stages, because I always talk about stages, especially as a social worker, you know, there are different stages of grief that one goes to, through, but you say, you like to talk about different ages of grief. What's the difference? Yes, well, the stages we all know, and, and my feeling is that they all come all roiled up together moment to moment. You go through the stages. I don't think they're clearly delineated and defined. And I'm just sort of intrigued by the concept of the ages of grief. As you said, to me, I thought, oh, my God, I am not old enough to be a widow. I would look in the mirror and I'd think, that person can't be a widow, and I'm, you know, really at a point where I'm still, not still, but at the, at the prime of being actively engaged in life, and I have a career, and I have a, a young, youngish at least daughter, and, and, um, it, it just made no sense to me. It did not compute that I was a widow. I, I said in the book, in After Image, I would think, you know, is there another word for this? Is that, can I be a widowette? Something a little more <laughs> youthful, you know? It, it made no sense to me. And I think that, yes, you know, different, different stage, different ages of grief bring sort of different stages as well. Um, as I mentioned, my father passed away a few years ago and my mother is, you know, in her 90s and I think that's a completely different experience. And she, in fact, will say to me, I have no right to complain to you. You know, she knows they were married 70 years. It's, it's a different experience. And I think for the very, very, very young widow, see, someone perhaps who has lost a husband at war, you know, 20s or maybe 30s, in, in their 20s or 30s, that's a different experience. Their children are very tiny. They have to get up in the morning and deal with the day-to-day 
elements of taking care of a small child, you know, the clothing and the feeding and the things that, that engage you. And I was in sort of a funny middle range. My child was able to take care of herself, and yet I certainly was not an old person. So it, I think the different ages are, are an interesting topic. I do, too. I think that, uh, and, and, and they, you know, they're kind of skirted usually. We don't talk about it, but you're so right. I mean, some of the things at different ages can be helpful and positive if you're young, Yes, you have the responsibility of young children, but at the same time, you have your whole, hopefully, your, their whole lives ahead. Right. Well, I think, I personally think the responsibilities of young children are a blessing. I mean, that's what gets you up out of the fetal position in the morning, you know. And, yeah, and then you mentioned your mother at 90 years old, and at 90 it's different. You know, sometimes people who are at 90, uh, you know, often, and I know with my mother's friends, and, and a lot of them are in their 80s and 90s, and they've been with somebody for 60 or 70 years, they end up dying within the year because that's been their whole life with that person for 70 years. And, right. and I'm, I don't mean to minimize any of the ages or say that any is less devastating than they're another. Different. I just think they're different. Yeah. All right, so you're in the middle. I mean, you're someone who could and can remarry, who is, uh, has a career, who's very engaged in life, and I assume healthy or healthy enough. Yes. And so all of those things, let's talk about you personally. I mean, uh, he, how, when he was, he was 55, your husband, when he died. How old were you? I was 53. 53. Okay, so you are kind of right in the middle. Um, so let's talk about being in the middle. Well, um, we also, as you mentioned, were screenwriting partners. So my husband and our life together was sort of one-stop shopping for me. <laughs> uh, so I lost everything. It was, it was the rug kind of being pulled out from every aspect of my life. So one of the things was, to, in writing this book, I think I reinvented my professional life. I had to kind of show myself that I could still work without him. I have not, I must say, returned to screenwriting to that format, though I'm not saying I never will. I certainly may. But um, I started writing prose, which I had done before. I, I had another book out a number of years ago, but this had been something I hadn't done in a while, and I needed to, I think, even subconsciously, prove to myself that I could still work. So that was something important to me, and that I was still me. I was still a writer, even though I had lost my partner. So that was one aspect of it. And then our daughter was in college, and I had to see her through college. I'm very proud to say she just graduated from graduate school. Congratulations. Thank you. So that was another thing. And my father was basically, you know, getting very old and ill, and that. so I had aging parents that I had always thought that my husband would be here to help me with. So I really had to redefine every aspect of my life, both personal and professional. Yeah, and I think that you start out with the professional. I think that's interesting because you really, I get when you say you had to read it, you were a screenwriter with your husband, but then you redefine, like you really had to hone in on your own skills, individual skills, and, and that was different than being a screenwriter. It was different, and it was scary to see if, if I had those skills and, <laughs> and, and if I had even more than having them, if I had the confidence to pursue it on my own. It was, I was unaccustomed to that. And you were obviously, you are obviously successful at it. I mean, you, you made good choices. Um, what about the relationship? In, I mean, you mentioned your daughter, and she just, what did she get her degree in, by the way, graduate school? She just graduated from the AFI, the American Film Institute, and she was in the editing discipline, so she is now officially a film editor. 
That's great. Um, and that's a tough job. It's all in the editing, isn't it, in most films? Well, she, I think, very interestingly yeah. talks about it as writing from the other end. Her parents yeah. were writers, and she <laughs> says it's writing from the other end. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Well, let's talk about her, your relationship with her and how did that change after your husband died, because I think it does change. Well, we were a little tiny family. She's an only child. So, I mean, we have a lot of extended family, but the three of us were a little tiny nuclear family and all of us very close in every permutation. Uh, any, any two and the three of us very, very close. I was, that's why I say a charmed life. And, uh, I think that if anything, my relationship with her has just gotten closer if that's possible. I mean, we, walk through fire together and I think we'll have that as a foundation for our relationship forever and and we can look at each other in any situation with any number of people and know what the other one is thinking that daddy would have said this or or at a restaurant daddy would have ordered that you know so we there's there's always kind of the three of us even when it's just the two of us what about this is kind of a a, a different kind of a question but uh, you do mention this. I mean, people, have, and, and I think particularly men, and I'm going to be sexist about this, but when someone dies, uh, uh, very often friends, family are so afraid to address the, the the emotions and all the stuff surrounding that person's death and talk to you in platitudes and say stuff that really is senseless or meaningless. How do you avoid that, or how can you help people so they don't do that to other people? I think the only way to do it, and, and I'm certainly not an expert in this field, you know, I'm, I'm just someone who lived it, but I think that you just bring up the person yourself and they get the idea that it's not taboo and it's not too scary for you not to hear the person's name, that it's comforting. To me, I found it very comforting to know that other people were missing him. It means that he left an impact. He left an enormous hole in lives that were not just mine and my daughter's. So you just you just mention the person. You don't want to be obsessed with the person and talk about nothing else obviously you want to show that you're doing your best to still have a life but i think you just mentioned the person and and the other people around you get the idea that it's okay i remember after my father died i you know that was my experience i wanted to talk about him i wanted to yeah to to, i don't know about that celebrating one's life i'm not sure about that but talking about him and and as you say uh, it was important to know that he was he was meaningful to other people. Very important. Yeah, that is. And uh, I think that's something that oftentimes people back off from. But, I, you know, I know my mother, her experience was that, uh, you know, a month later people were wanting, and she was uh, your age um, when he died, and, you know, wanting to fix her up and have her get married two months later. That was another issue. And she was still mourning and grieving, and, you know, and she eventually did and had a really great marriage. But uh, but the timing wasn't uh I think there's no time frame that fits everyone. This is not a one-size-fits-all process. Grief is not that. I think everybody has to do it in their own time. And for people to be saying, well, you know, looking at their watches, it's been a year, are you going to be dating? Or it's been a year, are you going to do this? That's ridiculous. The heart, you know, takes its own time. And And there's no feeling guilty about it either. Oh, my God, I'm still you know, having a hard time with such and such, or, oh, my God, that wasn't so bad. I was able to do this without him, and it wasn't so bad. You feel guilty about everything. I have guilt with, is my number one thing. So, <laughs> Survivor's you know, guilt. And, and, uh, and I'm learning to grapple with that. Either way, it's, it's taking me too long to do one thing, quote, unquote, or not long enough. Who cares? It, things take as long as they take. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, there's that whole issue of guilt and survivor's guilt, and you're not doing the right thing at the right time. It, yeah, it, you have it's it's so individual. But uh, Carla, who was the most beside your daughter supportive to you, or where did you find the most support? I was. I tell you, extremely fortunate. I, I couldn't have asked for more wonderful friends and family. Uh, my sister and her husband were just remarkable to me through the last few months of, of Lawrence's life and thereafter. And for for a couple of years, I didn't have to eat a meal alone if I didn't want to. I mean, I had to you know learn to carve out time to to learn to be by myself again because people just invited me everywhere. And my mo for dealing with things was to just say yes to everything. And I was like shot out of a cannon. My perpetual motion was really my MO for dealing with it for the first couple of years. Um, my, my mother, everyone was, was fantastic. I, I, I really learned, I must say, the value of friendship because as I mentioned, my husband was really also my best friend. I mean, I, I have always had wonderful friends and have been extremely fortunate in friendships, but I never think I never thought that I really fully understood the value and depth of friendships until this happened to me. So that's one tiny silver lining, not so tiny, is that I really learned how supportive and wonderful friends could be, not just family. But you, as you're describing yourself, sound like something, maybe you would never have had evaluated it, but I mean, your husband was your best friend your family, your daughter. So you are obviously somebody who does know how to make connections and oh, yes. nurture good friendships. I think I, I think I do, and I, yeah. I hope I do, and I certainly value them. I'm just saying my first line of defense has always had always been my husband and family, and I had to expand that. I had to learn to expand that, and I had to learn to ask for help, which was very difficult for me, from things tiny, stupid things around the house that he used to take care of. I had to learn to call other people to do that, all the way to calling people late at night saying, I'm in trouble, you know, and I can I talk to you? So I really had to learn to ask for help. Have you had any regrets? You know, I, I know when someone dies, or, I mean, a spouse, a, a child, a parent, I mean, the person you're closest to, is there any one thing that you regretted that perhaps that you could share with the you know with the audience like maybe perhaps there's something that you wished you may have done that um, you didn't do or you didn't say well I'll, I'll tell you what Catherine I have so many regrets it's hard for me to rifle through them and pick one for you <laughs> but that's that's me um, I would say I'm conflicted might be a better word about the fact that we really were in such denial that he and I never had that conversation, you know, um, where I thanked him and, and did all the things that you see in the movies in a scene like that, you know. However, I console myself by saying I don't think he really wanted that. I really don't think, I, don't not, I can never be 100% sure what was going on in his head, of course, but I certainly knew him well enough to know I think he didn't want to confront that either. It was too much for both of us, and I like to believe that after an entire lifetime together, we knew what the other one was thinking and feeling. So that's, that's the flip side of that coin. But I do occasionally have a regret that, oh, I wish I had just said even just thank you, which I, and I learned that lesson, and I did say that to my father. Well, and when you're talking about your husband, he probably, as you said, you were so close, you knew each other so well that if he wanted to do that, he too would have taken the initiative or could have to open, you know, well, to, to start true. the conversation. That's right. 
So, yeah, okay, that's one. You said there were so many. Uh, you know, tell us, uh, you know, because I think a lot of people, this is something that, that um, they they confront, that they, and, and so that's why I want to talk about it. But, like, that was one thing. What else? Well, I mean, there were some, just some medical things um, that I wish we had handled differently that were specific to his case. You know, and I'm sure that, that other people have that kind of um, perspective on things with hindsight. But I could, my, if I was going to say advice, and I don't hold myself up as anyone who wants to give advice, as I said, I just tell my personal story in After Image and, and see that people seem to be, really be responding and relating to it. But I would say just in terms of the medical aspects of things, um, you can't get too many opinions. You feel like, let's just, I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to have something hanging over me. Let's just pick a course of action and go with it and then kind of fill in. You, you, can't, you can't do too much homework. And I ultimately, I did. I did as we were going along. But up front, I think you can't do too much homework. So in other, I, the other side of that, or what I hear you saying, I guess, is maybe you wished you had done more homework. You don't like the, no one, I, I think, I'll say this, most people don't like the ambivalence. I mean, it's really difficult, and you're really vulnerable. It's much, you know, you want some, as you say, uh, take a course of action and go with it. And um, so are you saying you wished you had perhaps had, uh, you know, done more homework, found different doctors, hospitals, uh, you know, and probably, and Obviously, it could be exactly the same outcome, but well, that's exactly that- it, and that's another place where the conflict arises. Um, I think about that, but I suspect the outcome would have been the same. That's uncertainty in, in the wake of a situation like this is something that really plagues you, uh, and I have a lot of that in lots of different areas. I have no way of knowing if we ever could have had a different result. I have to say, we probably couldn't. I, I can't imagine that we could have. The particular strain of cancer that my husband happened to have was so vicious, I just don't think so. However, at 3 in the morning sometimes, especially early on, one wonders, was there something I missed? And I kind of took that upon myself to be the person who was doing the homework, so you think, you know, was there something I missed? So I just say to people, when you think you're driving yourself crazy doing the homework, personally, I think you can't do too much homework. Yeah, but at some point you do have to make choices and decisions and just go with it. That's exactly right. Yeah, you you can't keep just second-guessing doctors, second-guessing the hospital. You kind of have to make a decision. That's where you are at that particular place in time and and then let go of it. That's right. And there you you hit on it. I'm a hard time with letting go. That's not my thing. (laughs) So I'm, I'm a little bit of a control freak. So, yes, it's difficult. And I, we only have a couple minutes left, so what do we want to, you know, I want to mention the, your book again, because I think it's a terrific book. I think it's, I mean, it really does, a, you know, a service of, you know, to uh, After Image, A Broken-Hearted Memoir of a Charmed Life. And um, obviously you can buy that bookstores everywhere and online. Um, and do you have a website that... I do. Yeah. com. And... If we go to your website, uh, you talk about the book, or you, or I talk about the book. I talk about the genesis of the book. There are some excerpts from the book, and my other book as well, which I had the great good fortune and one of the joys of my life to write my father's autobiography with him. So there's a little bit about that book on there as well. You have a very interesting family, a very talented family, I guess, and it goes through the generations, including your daughter. Yes, she yeah. she has a lot of talent. I'm very proud to say. That's exciting. So what's next? I am just finishing my first novel, 
and uh, I hope to have that out and about when, and however long it takes to get a book out these days. The whole publishing industry is, is under such a state of flux that it's hard to know, but I'm just finishing that. It's been a, a great process. I've really enjoyed it. Great. Great talking to you today. Carla Thank you Malden, so much. After Image, A Brokenhearted Memoir of a Charmed Life. Go out and get it. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As I said, listen to us every Wednesday, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and uh, or listen to the archive show at the end of the day. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.